The Law Report with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's Law Report program. Well, as you know, once a month here on the Law Report, we run a legal clinic trying to answer a range of questions on a number of different topics. And tonight, of course, being the second Monday of the month, it's again time to open the lines for you to ask that legal question that doesn't quite fit into the other topics we discuss here on the Law Report. And just before we begin, a reminder that there's a list of available documents on the Facebook page, Law on SAFM. And if you'd like any of them, you can post a message on Facebook, but please do remember to include your email address or if you don't have access to Facebook you can email me on law at safm.co.za and I can send you a copy of the list and then you can choose what you want and I'll send it to you. Well I'm joined once again this evening by attorney Nicolene Skumanlo, a director of Skumanchaka Attorneys, Conveyances and Notaries Public. Nicolene, good evening, welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you for having me as always. So it seems like so long ago but I think it's all those public holidays that kind of just <laughs> made me think it was so much longer ago that you were here. Yeah, it feels it like does. a very long time ago. <laughs> if you have any questions at all you can call us now on 0892 10 2010. Well, since I saw you last, Nicolene, we've had a few emails, and I think we'll start off with those while we're waiting for the calls to come in. Sure. And the first one was from Jacques, and he says, should I wish to divorce my wife and apply for custody and control of our two children, must we first draw up or attempt to draw up a written agreement about the custody and access to the children? Um, well, in, in divorce actions, and this is, this is not my area of, of expertise, um, one, it's usually a preferable way forward to try and settle the matter, so to speak, by way of entering into some agreement that you could make an order of court. In many instances, if it's amicable enough, in other words, um, depending also, of course, on, on the age of the children involved, um, if they're a little older, um, one is much more able to uh, enter into these agreements freely because the children can be asked um, whether they are happy with the arrangement and, and they could be, be part of the discussion, so to speak. Now, usually this also involves the family advocate, and the family advocate is basically a, a structure through the courts um, which ensures that the needs of the children are, um, are upheld and looked after. Uh, the High Court is the upper guardian, as we call it in proper terms, of all minor children in the country. So the family advocate structure is really there to ensure that um, the best interests of the child is served through whichever agreement is, is reached at the end of the day. And it just so happens that one of our regular listeners, Sibusiso, who's at university in Stellenbosch, he calls us every now and again. And he, funnily enough, sent us an mm. email that said, in divorce matters where minor kids are involved, our courts are reluctant to settle a matter without the comment or report of the family advocate. So it's pretty yeah. much what you just said now. And he was, I think this was something yes. relating to the last time you were here. And yes. he was commenting on that. So it kind of ties yes. in with our first question. He was our, he was our caller uh, regarding the customary marriage. That's question. right, yes. Mm. Yeah. No. Right, and then we had a, an email from Musa who says, Earlier last year I was charged with drinking and driving in April 2013, which was provisionally withdrawn pending blood test results in January 2014. I would like to know, how can I clear my record of this offence? Because I plan to go work overseas towards the end of this year. And I think obviously if you have a mm. criminal record, you don't get visas. Especially yes. for places like the States who don't like mm. it at all. Yeah, it's as part of your visa application, you have to submit what, what we call a 
police clearance certificate and that's essentially a, a clearance of the fact that you do not have any pending um, criminal charges that are open or have been concluded as such to, to have a criminal record. So the key question here really is, um, has it been withdrawn uh, finally now? Is there clarity around that? I mean, January 2014 has come and gone. But we know that these blood test things do take an age. And he yeah. says that this was in April last year and the blood test results were due this January. And he yes. says it was provisionally withdrawn, but doesn't say what's happened since January now. So in, in all honesty, um, depending on what has happened since, um, it could very well have um, resolved itself. But I... Um, would be reluctant to advise to to follow that approach. Um, it would be much better to to seek legal advice uh, from someone who specialises in criminal law specifically or criminal defence, who could um, inquire through the proper channels what the status of the matter would be. Um, and if it has not been withdrawn, then you can obviously um, oppose it uh, or defend yourself as such in proper criminal defence terms and hopefully resolve it without having that record. So key here is really to seek advice. Um, make sure whoever you pick is, is uh, really good in the, the criminal defense space and try and resolve it. In many instances, you can, um, you can uh, enter plea bargains and all sorts of things that, that could um, not necessarily always result in a, in a criminal record. A plea bargain by itself is, of course, a plea Admission of, of guilt. Mm. Um, so that would result, but there may be other options. So at this point, it's it's a bit of a gamble. I wouldn't advise to, to take it. the chance and ignore it. And it pops up when you make your visa application and then you are tainted forever to go into that country. I would rather be proactive in this sense. Now, something like this, I mean, do you think that these things disappear at all? If, I mean, he hasn't heard anything, I mean, is it likely that it could have disappeared? I wouldn't take a chance on just assuming no. that it's disappeared. No, but that's exactly, what you're saying. I mean, exactly. don't do, don't leave it because, as you said, it might look like it's disappeared, but then you apply for your police clearance or your visa or something and up it pops. Yes. You know, and you don't want that to happen. Or so. it doesn't pop up now with this police clearance, but when you want to renew your visa and you're already in that country abroad, then it pops up. Well, we've, we've, because the firm deals with immigration law, we, we have often, um, we've come across matters like this where it's assumed that something has been sorted out or a medical condition isn't on the prohibited list of that country. Country, and then it was. Um, so really, uh, before you make this application, rather mm. rather seek advice. Um, sometimes it's a, a call to the prosecution authority and, and one gets clarity. Yeah, but rather just make inquiries yes. before you go any further. And he's got till the end of the year, he says, so you've got some time. Yes, police clearances don't take these that long these oh, days they take anymore. a while, trust me. <laughs> trust me. Mm. A, a few years ago, it used to be much worse. They take a good couple of months, <laughs> a good few months now. So you would need to get your ducks in a row in as June as already mm. to get that application for that um, police clearance in if you want to have it ready and available by the end of the year. So really do, do I would advise the listener to seek legal advice regarding this, this charge sooner rather okay. than later. Right, next email is from Zazembo who says, I'm an avid listener of SAFM, especially the Law Report. Thank you so much. That's mm. really nice to hear. He says, I emailed you last year about a problem my mother was facing. She's a teacher and employed by the Department of Education. On her payday for a period of about two or three months, 2,000 rand and 
sometimes 3,000 rand was taken as, in inverted commas, loan repayment money. When she did trace this place, it was in Bloemfontein, where she's never been and has, and has never made a loan from that institution. Then sent you, he says, I then sent you an email asking whether the ombudsman can help with the investigation. I'm happy to say that they have replied. They found that this institution fraudulently accused my mother, fraudulently accessed my mother's account and stole the money. Now, my question is, what should she do to put a stop to this? How does she retrieve the stolen money without involving civil court proceedings, which are costly? Oh, well, that's a, that's a very tough one. Um, firstly, of course, it, it was deducted by the employer before it was, uh, it wasn't like a debit order, in other words, mm. where you would have been able to access the structures within our banks, um, the anti-fraud structures specifically, where in there's a free service, uh, well, relatively free, there's usually a minimal amount payable, and then the bank takes up the investigation and recouping the money, and they also block any debit order, so it cannot go off in future. However, if it, if it is a departmental issue, then you'll have to approach the finance department. Many of our big institutions, including government, has similar structures to the bank to investigate fraud and all of that. And at the end of the day, um, our employers, regardless of who we are, if we run big business, if we're part of government, we can't just deduct from an employee's salary without their consent. It's very clear in our labor legislation. That's the first point. So the wrongdoing here, yes, is from this whichever Organ loan company, company organization. Was, yeah. But further to that, as an employer, the onus is on you to check that whatever you are deducting from one, someone's salary is lawful at the end of the day. So you need to you need to advise her to go through the HR and financial structures within the department and institute a, a relevant complaint and um, also request them um, that someone someone tries to, to follow up on that. Um, as I say, the other option is of course to, to institute legal proceedings. Um, but this is where it starts getting costly now. That's where it starts getting costly. So I would try and, and, and as I say, in terms of the labor legislation, you cannot without consent just simply deduct an amount. In in fact, uh, garnishee orders, which usually authorize loan deductions or a judgment that has mm -hmm. been taken um, as a result of a loan deduction, you need to submit the court order and you need to complete a form. There's a whole lot of formalities that have to take place in order to authorize such a deduction. Now, he apparently went through the ombudsman who mm. have helped. Uh, they've yes. now you know, discovered that this was fraudulently accessed. Mm. It was stated on the payslip as loan repayment money. Mm. Now, is there anything the ombudsman can do to help them recoup this loss or not? The ombudsman usually makes a ruling to the equivalent of, of the magistrate's court, depending on what ombudsman we are talking about. I would imagine it was the banking ombudsman. Yes, I would also imagine so. And they've got a similar standing as, as does the rental housing tribunal of a lower court, which means that they can do an investigation, have an outcome and make a ruling to say how to redress this. And if that has been exhausted, your internal mechanisms with your employer has been exhausted, I'm afraid that there is no other alternative. What about the small claims court? So if it's a small enough amount, and I say for two or three months, 2,000 plus it's seven plus three. What is it, 12? Is it, what, is the, what is the maximum? Is it 12 now? Um, it's 15. Oh, is it 15 now? I believe it's 15. Well, I stand can, to be corrected. The, well, if that is the case, they can go to the And that's not going to cost them no, much at all. No, that's not going to cost you much at all. Um, that you can do on owner 
court. You don't need an attorney. The clerks are very helpful there. So that would be that would be the next recourse. The small claims court. If you can't, if the ombudsman hasn't made a ruling or has and it hasn't been carried out or whatever, mm. and the HR department at the department doesn't help, small mm. claims court is your next best bet. But yeah, as I say, the 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 bigger institutions uh, as employers are very have structures that protect the employees from from these type of deductions and that often on request do something about it whether it be instituting that legal proceeding or recouping the money on owner court or whatever the case may be and, and then reimbursing the employees. So there are a few options there available. There are a few options. Well, that's good to know. Right, and then we had an email from Mauro Constantinides who says he listens to the show overseas, which is mm. rather nice. So I'm a former South African national currently residing overseas, and from my understanding of South African immigration law, should a South African citizen over 18 voluntarily acquire the citizenship of another country, he or she automatically loses his South African citizenship if he or she does not inform the authorities and obtain prior permission. My questions are simply, number one, what are the consequences of a loss of citizenship? Number two, to clarify question one, which is the loss of citizenship, if someone loses his citizenship while still in South Africa, what exactly happens? Will he or she be deported or forced to leave? And if you don't inform the requisite authorities, how will they find out? Thank you. Well, um, Let's start out at the beginning. Many countries, um, specifically European countries, allow dual citizenship. So, as does South Africa um, at the moment. There is talk that it will be revised in the near future, but for now, um, the status quo is maintained. So, um, if you do obtain your prior citizenship, you would effectively have two passports. And many foreign nationals who were based um, have European heritage and decided to settle in South Africa for a long period of time, hold that passport together with a South African passport, which is quite convenient for traveling. Mm. So if you're traveling out, you travel on, on the European passport, by example. If you travel back in, you travel back in on your South African passport and you, you, you have less visa-related issues to worry about. And that's the real advantage and why many people are leveraging that advantage. So that's where the prior permission comes in, and and that's what it tries to facilitate. Um, so what happens if you lose citizenship? Well, in terms of our, our recent last week, you won't be able to vote. Um, certain laws of the countries, um, specifically South Africa, are structured in such a way to protect its citizens. Um, of course, everyone enjoys certain basic human rights within the ambit, but certain laws only apply to, to citizens. So there's a regulatory effect if you lose your citizenship. Um, if it gets taken away, so to speak, then you need a, a permit to be here. And if you don't have a permit, you are an alien. And if they do find you, yes, they will deport you. So if you don't have a South African passport or, or ID, um, in that sense, you've lost your citizenship and you haven't applied for a permit um, on the basis of your remaining passport or your new passport, let's call it that, your new citizenship, then you need paperwork to be here. And if you don't have the paperwork, then yes, um, they, they probably won't find out because they are listening out and spying on you. But the minute you try to travel, it would become evident if you try to come back into the country and you don't have paperwork to come back in. So in reality, it's... Um, it, it's not a question of, okay, we take your citizenship and we 
kick you out the door, so to speak. Um, who will inform the requisite authorities or how will they find out? Well, as I say, if you travel in and out, that's, mm. that's usually... Um, why do so many of our illegal immigrants that enter the country in all ways, um, by sea, <laughs> over a fence and so forth, they stay under the radar, they do casual jobs, they don't enter formal employment, they don't pay tax, they stay under the radar and that's why uh, we have such a big problem in that space. Um, but it becomes evident the minute you try to either become employed, to open a banking account, to enter the system or to travel. So um, I hope this answers the questions. And the, the part about um, obtaining prior permission. So just say, for example, the South African citizen mm. now applies for a British passport because they're eligible and they get the British passport. Now they have citizenship of the UK and of South Africa. But before they, is it before they actually get mm. that UK citizenship? How do they? What do they do? It's a form that you have to fill in with Home Affairs, saying that you are of the in intention to apply for foreign citizenship. Okay, and then you, but, and, but you want to retain your South Africans at this yes. stage. You can do that. So you'll fill in that form, practically speaking. Say I, I'm of the intention, and here's my application form for this other citizenship that I intend to apply for, other passport in simple terms. And then simultaneously, that country, when they see you are a South African, will also cross-refer back to the prior permission. The countries that have the arrangements for dual citizenship make um, make uh, provision for it from either side. So they want to see that you've notified your government either of rejection of that citizenship or of your intention to keep it because both countries need to support dual citizenship if you want to have two. And if they don't, one needs to go and the other country needs to know about it. And you have to do this before you actually do this because he says here if you yeah. over voluntarily over the age of 18 acquired mm -hmm. that citizenship but didn't get the prior permission, now you're no longer South African. You can't backdate yourself. You can't go back and say, well, I was born here. You can um, make an application through the High Court. You can, uh, there are all sorts of structures. Many people don't know that they have to do the prior, obtain prior permission. So many people find themselves in this situation where either they have to relinquish one and choose, or they make application through the various structures of home affairs or internally. Or if that fails, you have to you have to approach court. Um, that's a very unfortunate position to be in because it could be quite costly and, and um, quite frankly, it could take many many years to resolve. So rather, if you're going to do this, yes, do everything that. Or if you're not sure, just go and find out before just go you and do find anything. Out and find an attorney on this side that knows about immigration law from a South African perspective, and find yourself a good one on the other side that knows those laws and regulations well enough simultaneously, so the two can speak and the two can make sure that whichever way you want to structure this going forward can be affected law lawfully on both sides. Just to make your own life easier in the long run at the end of it all. Definitely. Right. Email from Ayanda says, I would like to ask if it's legitimate for TransUnion to ask for my ID and proof of address. I was registering to their website to view my credit info. I'm skeptical in sending these documents and the reason is that on their site there is a column of amounts that they charge that I was applying for a free service. I have accepted their terms and conditions and have the username but I can't log in to view my profile until I send these documents. 
Well, I um, we we use another pla platform to all, um, to access the ITC or TransUnion, as as they are also known, um, for credit bureau information in our day-to-day -day operations. Um, so, I also checked our system, and and the platform we use at the moment doesn't request for FICA documents or anything to be uploaded. Um, I also looked at the website and it seems to be a FICA measure so that because TransUnion these days is quite a comprehensive report that you get it. It's a, a employment history report. It's um, a latest work and um, residential address on record and ID verifications, all sorts of fancy things that have been built into this platform. So I can only assume that it's for updating their record purposes, although there's no indication on the website. Um, similarly, it could also be uh, a measure to check that you are who you say you are in accessing the, the confidential information. Um, so it could be purely a, a system integrity measure as well. Um, if you feel uncomfortable in submitting this, um, I, I would rather say there, there's a few other credit bureaus that one could also access um, and there's a few other free credit services as well. And uh, TransUnion does have a telephone service, which I believe is still free of charge. So you'll phone instead of logging on, and then you get your, your profile emailed to you. Or to pay the minimum fee, which I think is 20 or 30 or 40 rand. It's, it's um, not, a, not a massive amount of money um, to, to obtain the records. But if you feel uncomfortable to send your ID over over a, a internet link, um, I'm sure many of us would feel uncomfortable with that, then um, then rather see if there aren't any other services that, that could provide you the same insight. Without needing that information. Without needing the information and with maybe a minimal charge um, without exposing the information. Right. Um, quick one here from Raphael. It says, I went to a supermarket to shop. The floor was slippery and I fell. I broke two teeth and suffered Ooh. a concussion. There was oil on the floor. Can I sue them? Of course. You can. Of course. we. Um, I think uh, we've had a similar question a few months ago. Um, and I can't but remember one of the court cases that we studied in our first year about um, the law of delict and all of that. And um, basically, um, the, the situation was somewhat similar, except for the fact the oil was a cabbage leaf. In, in this instance, and the person slipped. It was a ve vegetable shop, uh, fruit and veg kind of shop, not the store per se. Mm. Um, but they, the, the person slipped on the leaf, long story short, and, and injured themselves quite badly. And the store was actually held accountable for the medical bills, um, for for uh, damages and, and all sorts of things, compensation. So... Um, the recommendation there is to get yourself an attorney that specializes in um, personal injury, um, similar to those guys that do the, the RAF claims, or road accident fund claims. It's a similar space of law, and um, they'll advise you which um, to go and see a doctor. The doctor will have to give you a bit of a report and then just keep track of all your medical and other expenses that you've incurred in order to bring this claim. Right. The other one is rather a long thing. It's actually some documents from... Pumla, and it's all about 
some it's a case that she's brought against the post office um apparently and it's now gone to the constitutional court by, by what i can gather mm. here and it's all to do with the fact that the post office was instructed to pay 50% of my ex-husband's pension fund with interest calculated from September 2007 within 30 days of the judgment. It's now been two and a half months since the final judgment was passed and no payment has been received from the post office yet. And it goes on all about the communications and the attorneys and all that sort of thing. And then at the end, she says, I'm in a state of destitution and would like to turn my circumstances around, but require funds to fulfill the envisaged objective. I wonder why the post office has not respected the constitutional court order. And in fact, I feel my constitutional rights have been infringed to the extent that my dignity has been compromised. What can you do at this point? Well, if you have a judgment, you, um, you're in a very good position to... Um, execute the judgment or to give effect to the judgment. In other words, you've you've got this piece of paper in hand, you've walked the road to go through the court structures to put your case forward and you've been successful. So you've got what we call a liquid document or a document that summarizes a tangible legal right, pretty much to, to having a, ca a check that you need to go and cash. So the check is now somewhat unsigned. Um, and in order for, for execution to take place, you, there's another step that has to, to be taken. So um, I'm not sure why the attorneys are apparently um, not, not communicating clearly with client in, in terms of what is next, but it's the execution of the court order, which means they have to issue a warrant or um, bring a further application of um, um, content because basically um, they're in breach of a formal constitutional court court order and then to go and attach something at the post office um, in order to satisfy the judgment debt and to sell it at an auction. So it's, it's fairly simple. You have to get a warrant. If they don't want to pay you in cash by way of electronic transfer, then go and take something that you can sell to the value of your judgment debt. What I find odd, she says here, the attorneys who represented me in court are confused about the next action to take. So I made mm. countless efforts to get the attorneys to pressurize the post office to release the funds, but were all fruitless. I mean, show you that. And that doesn't sound um, right. Uh, we don't know who the attorneys are, so at least we can't be accused no. of, of... No, there's no name in here at all. <laughs> of, ...of saying something uh, 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 less favorable about a colleague. But um, in... In a nutshell, they, it's fairly simple. Execution needs to take place. And um, execution could involve um, p taking possession of some or other item. Now, I don't know why why that seems to be um, a, problem, yeah. a problem or not being communicated correctly. It sounds to me like the... Maybe maybe they don't want to proceed because there's an issue with payment and they do know clients are not in a position to pay. Or maybe she could once she got the money. Of course. I mean, that would make logical sense. Of course. So my advice to the listener would be, firstly, you have the court order. You're very close to the end of the road here. Um, get someone to go and execute this court order. If these attorneys don't want to do it, um, get a copy of your court order and take it to the Law Society, ask them to give you an attorney on a pro bono basis that is willing to do it, or on a contingency basis then. Now, is the Constitutional Court where she seems to have gone now, is that the right 
direction or not really? Yes, she can uplift the court, court file, uplift or in other words, get get the court file and get them to make a copy of the court order so that she's got a, a copy of it with her and then take it to another firm of attorneys. No, I'm saying that she's, she sent this letter that we've got now. It's a copy of something she sent mm. to the constitutional court. No, they won't be able to do anything. The attorney physically needs to... The warrant is similar to an application we bring at court. Essentially, what we're asking the court is to authorize you to go and attach or collect something, whether it be a motor vehicle or a desk or whatever the case may be. I'm just thinking in, mm. a, in the post office setup. In many instances, when you are litigating a lot against large organizations such as government institutions or so on, and often court orders remain unsatisfied which means that you have to go the route of getting the warrant and you have to go the route of getting the sheriff to go and take something which you can sell at an auction unfortunately there's there's not much else that you can do the court has for intents and purposes in terms of of the rules done what they've had to do the judges are there to make a ruling they've made the ruling yeah so Pumla basically I don't know whether this constitutional court application is going to be the right way to go mm. as Nicolene says your best bet now is to go to the law society mm. tell them your story and ask them if there are any attorneys that will do the case pro bono which means they'll do it for free or possibly on a contingency mm. basis which means they will get paid only once you get your money and they will take some of that as their fee. Yes, and similarly, um, the Law Society may investigate why uh, these these attorneys are not communicating mm. properly or, or dragging their feet, so to speak, from what we're seeing from, from this letter um, and to investigate that. But I, that can take time. So that's why I'm saying usually you could go and you could institute a complaint and, and the law society can help you investigate it and deal with it but similarly one needs to be very careful that it that will take a lot of time which clearly from the letter you don't, you don't have. have so oh. rather cancel their mandate if you want to the law society to investigate their behavior then so be it but Get yourself someone who's willing to do it at no charge or on a contingency fee And basis. Pumla, if you yeah, if you look it up in the in the telephone directory or if you have access mm. to the internet, the law society. I don't know where you are in the country, but there is a law society all over the place. There are law yes. societies, so just look up the one closest to you and uh, contact them first thing in the morning. And hopefully, they'll be able to help you further from that. Oh, yeah. Right, some calls now. Before we go to that, just a reminder: I'm joined this evening by Attorney Nicolene Skumanlo, and she's a director of Skuman Chaka Attorneys, Conveyances, and No public and it's our law clinic this month for the month of course if you have any questions you can call us on 0892 10 2010 0892 10 2010 sam in escort good evening good evening Ram. how are you i'm very well thank you sam how are you i'm okay right you've got a problem here with the tax and bargaining council money yeah 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 firstly i'd like to say yeah, you are doing a very great Thank you very much for that show. Thank you, Sam. It's really mm, nice to hear. Thank, thank you. you. Makes it worthwhile coming in every every <laughs> Monday evening. Thank you. Right. How can we help you this evening? See, my problem. Our first slip is stating that we are being uh, we are being uh, paying tax and uh, the money for bargain council. But we, uh, if you go there and check, we are find uh, we are finding out that there is nothing. There is totally nothing which is being contributed there. Oh, so wow. they're not paying it over? They are not paying it over, but our, our pay slips, they are stating that yeah, the, uh, 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 that money is being deducted. Mm -hmm. And this is for SARS money and the tax money and as well as your bargaining council fees? Yes. 
Yes, yes. Oh dear. <clears throat> mm. Well, I'm I'm not an expert in labor law. I think um, that's Michael Bagram's Michael field. Bagram is 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 the fundi when it comes to that. Um, mm. But if it's been deducted from your salary and it's indicated like that on your pay slip, the only person that can really deal with a complaint, so to speak, is SARS in terms of um, the the tax money and the bargaining council. In other words, if they haven't received their money, they have to deal with the employer, um, and and that would be my advice, purely on the on the basis of of general principles. Um, I'm not aware if there's any special structure that you could maybe refer this to. Um, I'm just uh, we have had this this similar sort of a story once when Michael was here, and mm. I know he did ask Sam, are you the only one or the others in your business that are also having the same problem? No, the whole company. The, the, okay, the whole company is over here. Okay, what Michael said, if I recall correctly, mm. I hope I've got this right. He mm -hmm. said, is, if as many of you as possible need to go because it mm. makes for a stronger case. But there, there are investigation sort of departments within mm. SARS, and you need to go because you're the one that's going to get hit with a tax that isn't paid. Mm. But they will investigate the employer because if yes. you need to have all those pay slips. You, you must have all the proof. And it's the mm, same with the different. bargaining council. You need to go directly to the bargaining council and directly to SARS and tell them you are paying it. Here is the proof. It's been taken off my salary every month, but it's not being paid over. That's in basically it's not your fault. It has yes. to be investigated and the employer and mm. has to be taken to task on both of those cases. Yes, and, and I mean from a SARS perspective, we, we are submitting our, our returns mm. again one of these days and then it's going to reflect on your return that you owe them some money when when you shouldn't be owing them any money. So this will become a very clear problem um, by the time that, that the next return is due. Sam, how did you find out they weren't paying it over? We went uh, we went there and checked. Then we found out that there's nothing which is being contributed. Oh, did you go to SARS, you mean? Yes, we uh, we went to SARS and they went to Bargain Council. Okay. Then uh, it uh, it says uh, they didn't even contribute anything. Then at Bargain Council, they only paid up to uh, last, uh, August last year and since 2011. Ooh. Oh, my goodness. Okay. No, you need to go and speak to you, SARS yes. or just actually you can probably even phone them. And they, they do, do you have access to the internet? Sam? Yes. I think if you go onto the SARS website, I think on the mm. front page, there is actually a contact number for fraud. And this is fraud, mm. as far as I'm aware. Mm. Okay. Well, um, th the one side of it is that by the time you have to fill in your next tax return, that, that at some stage they're going to pick up on, on the non-payment that they've received. And they are not going to pick it up on the employer side, they're going to pick it up on the individual side because, as you know, these these days all our returns are populated via e-filing, which is electronic. So all the system information gets fed through from the system, and if there's nothing on the system because it hasn't been actually paid over, you are going to be paying penalties, which are quite heavy, and eventually it um, SARS could could of course um, take it take action against you for for the payment and uh, um, bargaining council similarly. But of course, um, I think everyone one knows that the the tax man, you know, you, you, you make sure that you, him, yeah. <laughs> that you that you that you pay up your dues. But 
Um, I, I concur with Karen. If if there as many of you as possible can can stand together, SARS has, uh, in in addition to their fraud departments um, and their compliance departments, as as I believe they call them, they also have within each office they've got a, a separate officer that you can approach and they can physically log and give you a reference number for your complaint so that that reference number is available to you when you have to submit your return so that you don't pay the penalties at the end of the day. Sam, just one thing. if you, I'm going to put you back to my producer now. If you can just give him an – do you have an email address? Yes. I'm going to email you tomorrow morning because I think I might be able to fast-track this for you a little bit because often on the show we have a very helpful man from SARS called Mark Kingon and okay. he is the head of escalation. So if there's mm. any problems, he's the guy that I send information to. So I'm going to email you tomorrow morning to get some more information from you. And then I will be in touch with him and see if he can't help you out with this. Okay, thank you very much. All right, so just hold the line, Sam. Don't go away. Okay, okay. I'm going to put you back to the producer now. Okay, right. Our next caller is Sadima in Cape Town. Sadima, good evening. Uh, yes, good evening, Karen. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Oh, yes, I'm fine. Thank you very much for the good show. Thank you. How can mm. we help you? doesn't sound like you have a happy story there, Sadima. Uh, yes, uh, I don't have a happy story at all, right? Uh, on the 15th of February this year, mm-hmm. on, on my way to the new, to the new Daily Book Fair in India, mm-hmm. I was arrested by the immigration police at O.R. Tambo Airport. Mm-hmm. Uh, they told me that uh, there was a warrant of arrest uh, for for me in Kailicha, Cape Town. What? Okay. Uh, and I was shocked. Uh, they told me that I was wanted by the police in Kailicha for, for a drunken driving charge uh, that dated back 2008. And uh, I told them that I recalled the case and the case had been withdrawn by the court. But nevertheless, they, 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 they locked me up. And uh, it was only on Monday. Uh, they locked me up on Saturday. It was only on Monday when the court uh, in Kempton Park phoned the court in Kailisha. And uh, they confirmed with them that, no, the matter was withdrawn in 2009. Oh, wow. So, so, so they don't know how it happened that there was a, a warrant for my arrest, mm-hmm. why the matter was, uh, was withdrawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was released. So uh, I had missed my flight to India and uh, and the money which I paid for the ticket. And uh, I'm an author. There were books that I was taking there because I had been invited to the New Daily Book Fair. Mm. Um, my latest book, To Find a Better God. Mm. And uh, so my luggage had gone on to India. Mm-hmm. Because I'd remained at the airport. So uh, I could not sell those books, so which means I lost business. And uh, I had to buy another ticket to get to India, but I could not get access to my books you know, while I was in India. So uh, I don't know what recourse do I have, the, whether it, it was the fault of the Department of, of Police mm-hmm. for, not, for not withdrawing the... The, the warrant of arrest or the Department of Justice. I don't know which one mm. uh, I, I, can, I can challenge, really. 
Well, um, firstly, it, it's it's definitely a case of wrongful arrest, as as we would call it, um, and there's a clear clear um, cause for damages here. So I would recommend that you that you take um, action against uh, the department. Um, in this case, it it would it could possibly, if it was immigration police, it could in, involve a whole range of departments. But fundamentally, it it would be the police department, which um, which doesn't fall under justice to my to my understanding of the structure but yeah. you'll you'll have to brief an attorney and most attorneys that work in the space um of as we earlier we mentioned earlier um road accident fund claims and personal injury and similarly with um wrongful arrest cases they often work on a contingency fee basis which means you pay on success if you win the case on mm. conclusion yeah. So um, I would recommend that you look for someone who would be willing to assist you on that basis. And in the meantime, um, and, and maybe I, I hope our, our early listener with, with, um, with a similar um, claim, um, well, rather the email is, is also tuning in, you have a three-year period within which to do this. So if, if funds are a challenge, um, make a plan to to get them together so that you can bring these actions before your three-year period expires. Yeah. Um, so go and look for someone that works on a contingency fee basis. Ideally, if that doesn't, if that can't work or can't happen, then find out if you can't make a payment arrangement of some sort. Would it would it be would it be a, a possibly a good thing for Sadima to contact the law society? You could possibly yes. put him in touch with the correct type of attorney. Yes, that would be a. a a good way forward and in the meantime get your ducks in a row calculate exactly uh, obviously your airfare is fairly simple to calculate what yeah. you spent on that um, and and factor in the the books of course and and the your missed opportunity your miss missed opportunity and of course um the humiliation you need to yeah. you need to you need to put a ransom to amount to that but at least get all your receipts of of the concrete direct expenses in order so when you do go and see your attorney you've got all of that in order and they can just help you with with the um as we say non patrimonial portion or the the portion that relates to the the more emotional scarring and humiliation that you you must have um been subjected to. So Dima, I see you're in Cape Town. So you look it up in the telephone directory, mm. the Law Society of the Cape or the Cape Law Society, yes. and yeah. then and ask them if they can help you to find the correct type of attorney mm. because not all attorneys will deal with this kind of case. Okay. Yeah. But the Law Society will be able to direct you to the correct type of attorney that would be able to help you with this. Yes. But okay. don't leave it, Sadima, because as Nicolene says, you only have three years and you know three years goes by very fast. So yes, rather get yes, yes. get onto the story as soon as you possibly can. And remember remember if you, you're acting against any government department because it's government, they've got uh, longer time periods between each step step in the litigation process or the court process. We have 10 days that generally have 30 days. So it's three times longer to conclude a matter like this. So yeah. get working on it sooner rather than later. Oh, okay. Good luck. Oh, yeah, good oh, luck. Thank you very much. Thanks, Adem. Sorry about what happened to you, and I hope you can resolve this to the best mm. that you possibly can. Yes, okay. Thank, thank you for you. getting through to us tonight. Good night to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right, uh, Emmanuel in Cape Town, good evening. Uh, good evening, Key. Hello, how are you? Fine, and good evening to your guests. 
Hi. How can we help you, Emmanuel? Yeah, thanks for the good show. Um, I just have two questions here. My first question is, um, how long does a refugee in South Africa need to stay before his or her status is changed to a citizenship? Uh, I want to know how, what the law says and how the refugee can go about that. My second question is, you know, sometimes, or as time goes on, the, the Home Affairs interviews the refugee on his stay in South Africa, and sometimes they come to a conclusion that, okay, um, um, your, your country of origin, um, there's no more problem as to what you declared, so you must go back. Mm. Whereas, in actuality, that country still has that problem that chased the person out, that problem of insecurity, mm. either economical or political or, you know, whatever, whatever, is still there. You know, like most countries don't declare their true position. They just say on the radio, it's, you know, things are okay in the country, but if you go deep down, things are not okay. Now, when the refugee is not asked to leave, the, let's say like in South Africa, and I, I, I must leave South Africa and go back to his country of origin. What can I do, you know, in that situation? Okay, well, refugee or asylum seeker um, permits are, are granted depending on, on various circumstances. So generally, it's it's a sixth month sometimes it's a, a 12 month permit and as you say there are, are regular interviews um with the permit holder as to um the continued stay and all sorts of things um i think maybe maybe i should just say this from a government perspective and and i'm i'm purely basing this on the regulations it's whether or not i personally agree with this is is quite irrelevant um but from a regulation point of view a refugee or asylum seeker permit is an indulgence given by one government to the citizens of another government. So if there's an imminent serious threat, and there are various ways in which they classify imminent serious threats, then they allow certain persons to come into the country on these permits so that they have lawful paperwork. In many instances, um, the conditions are so bad that there isn't any other cause for this person to be in the country. So, for example, it would be so bad that you wouldn't have formal qualifications which would um, make you eligible for getting work in a specific field um, and therefore you can't get a work permit. Um, you wouldn't have funds so you can't get a business permit to start your own business because the requirement is about the 2.5 million rand guarantee or property that you have to vest within the country in order to get that kind of permit. So in reality, refugee permits or asylum seeker permits are there because there is no other option for those guys to come into the country on any other lawful paperwork. So my advice to most of the clients that I have seen with these permits is to try the minute you are in and you want to make a life here, make sure that you get some training, you do something so that you can qualify for one of the other permits. Because a refugee or asylum seeker permit never gives you concrete fixed term security. It can change on an interview as you've just just said. I'm, I'm oversimplifying but um, generally speaking, it's not one of our 
call it um, predictable, stable term permits. So you've got a range of different other permits that you could, could then apply for working permits, um, exceptional skills if you, you're an artist or something like that, for example, um, or if you need a medical treatment or whatever the case may be. There's, a, there's about broadly six, seven of them. So there are all these different types of permits with different uh, different requirements attached to them. And if you meet all the requirements and you fill in the document, then you can stay for two years. Then after two years, you can make application for permanent residence, which has its own requirements. So give or take, you have to be on, on a permit free from any um, uh, criminal records or... Um, any other kind of unlawful behavior and you can then become a permanent resident, get yourself a South African ID book within give or take five years and um, then you can eventually apply for a South African passport. But the key of what I'm trying to, to get across now is to say try and, and find out what other permits are there are out there, what can you apply for and change to one of the others as soon as you possibly can. Does that help you, Emmanuel? That helps a lot. Thank you very much. Well, good luck to you with that. Go and see a trusted attorney, please. <laughs> don't, okay. don't go and see a consultant that isn't registered. These guys produce fraudulent permits and all sorts of things. And then you'll be in worse trouble. Just make sure you go and see an attorney, not a consultant. <laughs> Thanks, Emmanuel. Okay, Thanks. Thank good you. night to you. Bye-bye. James in Johannesburg, good evening. Good evening. Hello. How can we help you, James? You want to talk about car repossession? Yes. I, I've been unemployed for a year, but um, before I was unemployed, I wrote to the bank and informed them that I will be out of job, but I do have some savings to pay up the car. Mm -hmm. and, and I requested that they restructure the, the installments. Mm -hmm. The bank never did that, and I phoned them, I wrote to them, I have proof of this. And for six months, I paid the car out of job, and when I missed my seventh installment, they phoned me, and they demanded the payment, and I requested them to consider my request. And eventually, the bank implemented the restructured plan, but unfortunately, I was out of funds. And I told them that I won't be able to honor the... Um, the restructured um, plan because I'm no longer employed. They insisted that if I don't pay the minimum um, installment, then they would proceed with legal um, action. So they did that, and they obtained a judgment, a default judgment, early this year, end of on the 25th of Jan. Mm -hmm. They obtained a a a, a court order, mm -hmm. and they never served me with summons. They just mm -hmm. phoned me to instruct me to hand over the vehicle. Mm -hmm. And I told them that I have been working from Jen and I did start paying my installments. And I still am able to continue and service the car and also to pay off the areas. But the bank still insists that the car belongs to them and they have a legal right to take it and they are proceeding ahead mm. with... Um, uh, taking the, 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 you know, the exercising their legal mm. uh, right. And they have now appointed a, um, a tracing agent to to trace the car and 
to reprocess it. So they don't want to negotiate that I'm now working and I'm willing to, to pay. Have you considered um, appointing an attorney to help you with the negotiation? I did um, because I was not employed, but I did try to speak to a lawyer to do a pro bono, but the lawyer was saying that there's okay. no option. What we can do, we can apply for a, a rescission yes. of judgment, but it is not guaranteed it will be granted, mm. uh, more so that there is still a debt. Yes. You know, so maybe on procedure we could do that. But the, the 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 attorney I have to chase after him, and he does not have confidence mm. that we would win the case. So, but I'm confident because I know I did the right thing by approaching the bank. Yes, and I have communication, trying to inform them and trying to help and solve the matter. Well, from a procedural perspective, and in terms of what you're saying, I I think. Um, we always say as attorneys that the rescission of judgment application particularly is is really a very tricky one because it's, um, well, any court action really is a 50-50 chance with no guarantees um, because two sides of the story and, and sometimes um, there are unforeseen circumstances that, that make themselves known and that can, that can influence the decision at the end of the day. But from a procedural perspective, it, this would be a, a National Credit Act application that the bank would have brought against you. And there are certain steps that had to be followed. For example, you had to receive a letter of demand in a specific way. It had to look a specific way, the letter of demand itself. It um, Your summons wasn't properly served, as you say. So besides the fact that there is still a debt, yes, that is one portion of it, and it's not a very positive portion of it, but the... There is enough evidence to show that you tried to make arrangements before it got to this and that procedure and getting to this point wasn't properly followed. So I would, at the very least, if I were you, get a second opinion from a different attorney, not on a pro bono basis. You are employed now. Um, and then try and, and firstly try and make a, a settlement agreement with the bank to the effect that um, you you rearrange things Um Often when matters have gone through the legal process, the creditors are not amenable to speak to the debtor directly, um, the bank and you being creditor and debtor. Um, so I would recommend get, get yourself a new attorney on a paid basis that would be willing to firstly speak to the bank's attorneys to see if they can't renegotiate this matter. If that fails, try and get a second opinion on bringing this rescission of judgment application. I myself have renegotiated quite a few of these kind of incidences for clients. So in many instances, the banks are amenable when it happens between the attorneys. So, And then the period, and then the period that I have, the judgment was granted 25th Jan. Mm -hmm. How much time... Do I have to? Yeah, you would have. You would have to apply for a for a condemnation at mm -hmm. this point. You're already months. you're already out of time. You would have uh, you would have had um, 21 days if I'm um, if my brain isn't uh, playing tricks on me right now to uh, to have brought your application. Only 21 days. Gosh. Yeah, after and becoming aware oh, oh. of 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 the judgment itself. James, and I cannot apply for the NCR uh, to look into the matter. Yeah, as of well. course, you can. Of course you can. Okay. James, good luck with that.
It sounds thank like quite a long road, but uh, don't give up. Keep no, going. No, definitely get a second opinion. Absolutely. But thank you for getting through to us this evening, and good luck to you. Thank you. Good night to you. Well, my thanks once again this evening to Nicolene Skumanlo. She's the director of Skuman Chaka Attorneys, Conveyances and Notaries Public Practicing here in Cape Town, and she's been my guest on tonight's edition of the Law Report program. And we'll be running legal clinics like this one on the second Monday of every month, and Nicolene will be back with us again for another one of those clinics on Monday the 9th of June. But you're also going to be joining us again next week, I believe. Mm, yes. We're going to be talking about Triple B E E. Yes. And business. Yes, and sustainability in the South African context. Right, so if you've got any questions about your business and triple BEE and all that, do tune in next week because Nicolene will be back again. The Law Report is on the air on SAFM every Monday evening between 9 and 10. And just a reminder that there's a list of available documents on the Facebook page, Law on SAFM. And if you'd like any of them, post a message on Facebook. But please remember to include your email address. Or if you don't have access to Facebook, you can email me on law at safm.co.za and I'll send you a copy of the list so you can choose what you want. Well, I'll be back with you tomorrow evening just after nine with Health Matters and it's our monthly phone-in and this month I'll be joined by podiatrist Sean Pincus. So if you have any questions about your feet, you can join me then.